A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon, or sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. Hi, welcome to the Meta Hour. This is Sharon Salzberg, and I'm going to hang out with Raghu Marcus. And here I am, and thanks for having me. And uh, we... I want to reminisce a little bit, actually, uh, and it's not that far back, because the last time I saw you, Sharon, we were uh, we went to see the 16th Karmapa. Oh yeah, in yeah. Jersey, and I just there's such a funny little thing that happened. I was thinking, I don't even think I talked to you about it, but uh, so uh, the event went on. It was a day long thing, and then at the end of it. Um, and we had katas, uh, uh, silk scarves, which is traditional to give to uh, a Rinpoche, and uh, they put it on you, and it's it's a, a blessing. So we had our silk scarves, and we heard he we saw his limos th- that he was going to take off in right in front of the hotel. So Sharon and I decided we were waiting for our ride to come, and we decided, well, let's just hang out here and see. Maybe we'll get lucky, and we'll get that little blessing. So we hung out and we hung out and we hung out. We saw people going up to his room and we were, you know, I felt like uh, when I, I don't think I told you this, but I felt like when I was 24 when I met Maharaji <laughs> Neem Karoli Baba and I was, you know, we'd be just waiting on tender hooks for his appearance at any moment. And uh, so I, I, I just went backwards in time to that moment. And then finally he came up, he came out and he was going to, he was walking with his, uh, with the secret service people who were there to accompany him, uh, out to the vehicle. And Sharon and I were standing in the line. And as he walked by and I, I knew that I had this plaintive look, Oh, please come and give us the blessing. Love me. Yeah. And he walked right through, not even a glance. 
in our direction. And and I was crestfallen. Sharon, being way more wiser and balanced <laughs> than I am, just took it in stride. But it took me a, at least, anyhow, at least, I don't know, three or four minutes to get over that. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that a fun moment? That was a fun moment. You know, I, I saw him after that in New York City. Oh, yeah? Um, I couldn't go to his talk because I, I had to do something. Uh, but I went to a reception that was being held for him prior to the talk and um, went up and got a blessing. And, and it was more, it was a full on, like, oh, oh yeah. hi. <laughs> oh, really? And... Kind of experience. Uh... Let's see if the, if the former had not happened, who knows if the... The other one would have happened, right? right. I had to lay the groundwork karmically. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> but I didn't get the payoff. Uh, but uh, just to let everybody know, uh, he when he was here the second time, the 16 Karma, but who we really love and we really, really talk about a lot on uh, on our sh- uh, podcast, Mind Rolling, as well as on the MindPod Network, uh, because he is, I think, just an incredible... Um, person to really uh, attract and guide uh, the new generation of people that are interested, and uh, just his uh, his his into LGBT rights. He's uh, into the envi- He talks about the environment and our taking care. He talks about um, uh, women in in, in a monastic tradition and improving that whole lot and so on. He's so forward thinking. He's just a fantastic, uh, being. And, uh, I was fortunate that Sharon invited me a couple of years ago, three years ago, uh, to, um, Washington where she got to go up with a couple of friends to his room and hang out with him in the room. Uh, and just talking about nothing, really. We were just, there was no spiritual anything. It was just more about his, what's what's it like for you coming to America kind of a deal. And uh, there was a moment, and I had met, and I've told this story at least three or four times on different podcasts. It is just such a momentous a moment for me um, that when he did that kata ceremony and put the just at the end, he thank you for coming, and he and he held our hand and he put the the scarf on, and I just I went downstairs from there. We were on our way to a Bob, uh, Bob Thurman talk actually, and uh, we were waiting for the car, and I couldn't move. I was just sitting there, and I remember I remember telling you, Sharon, I can't move here. <laughs> well, come on, and uh, yeah, just automatic uh, place for two three hours meditative space. Uh, was very powerful, um, and he's just—he was like I don't know what he was, twenty-seven, twenty-eight year old. This beautiful young man, uh, and uh, I had met the sixteenth uh, in the just before he died in the early eighties in a black hat ceremony in Los Angeles, and and felt the his presence, which was very much like for me Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, uh-huh. and I and I could t- I could feel whatever that thing is that goes from one life to another, to another incarnation that represents whatever we want to call that. Okay. Uh-huh. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about that in your, we, the whole thing of, of the Hindu soul and the Buddhist pure mind and, and who we truly are and how those terms uh, am I being, I, I always say, look, there cannot be any difference. It's just a different way for 
us to express something, but I think Buddhists would would say uh, would take askance at that because um, there's the implication with the soul thing that there's an individuality that does a certain part of meanness, not mine. Can you just elaborate your own <laughs> thoughts about that? It's quite uh, a place to start. I know it just <laughs> okay. came up. I don't know. I don't. Know. Um, well, I think you know if you talk to somebody like Bob Thurman, for example, as a Tibetan Buddhist scholar, he'd say, I mean, of course there's a self. Or you talk to Sukhna Rinpoche, he says there's an I, but which I? You know, does it have to be a reified I, um, or can it be what Sukhna Rinpoche calls either mere I, or social I? Um, the reified eye is something that I think any Buddhist tradition would would say does not exist. That's that's a, a kind of a wrong-headed concept. Reified meaning solid, unchanging, unyielding, independent of causes and conditions, somehow in control of things. Um, and that would definitely be something that I think any Buddhist tradition would say, well, not really, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean that the sense of individuality um, is going to melt somehow, you know, that we're going to be part of a soup uh, rather than have individual uh, existence and karma and, um, uh, you know, cause and effect. And when people confuse that, that's when all those funny questions come up. Like once I was teaching and some a guy kind of randomly pointed to a woman in the room and said, if there's no self, how come she's not paying my taxes? <laughs> you know, it's not like that. Uh, it doesn't become this kind of crazy meltdown, you know. Mm. Um, but first of all, the idea is the way it's going to be after enlightenment is the way it's always been. It's just that we see it. You know, so it's not like there's a self that we've now destroyed or, or killed or annihilated. So anything that worked before enlightenment should work after. Um Right, you know, right. or even short of full enlightenment, any anything, uh, kind of a deep insight into no self or selflessness, as the Buddhists would say, and whether that's the same state. I mean, I imagine so. You know, the words are certainly different. Um, sometimes it seems like if you get those great beings together in silence, they'll be more in accord than if they're using words. You know, because. Mm. Because they're they're pretty much saying the same thing and calling it something different. It seems to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I I've been reading this incredible book. It's uh, well, uh, it's commentaries that I've been reading on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's it's, it's uh, there's a psychological commentary by Jung. Really, which is really fascinating. Uh, and. Uh, uh, it's there's a foreword by Sir John Woodruff. Do you remember him? He's a, a, a British man who has steeped in, in Tibetan uh -huh. tradition and so on. And he just gives tremendously insightful uh, information around the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And, and this is something uh, that actually sparked why I just, uh, what I just asked you. Um, I'll just read something. Uh, we can comment it. At length, the deceased passes out of the bardo dream world into a womb of flesh and blood. 
issuing thence once more into the waking state of earth experience. This is what in English is called reincarnation or rebirth in the flesh. The Sanskrit term is samsara, which that is rising and rising again in the worlds of birth and death. Nothing is permanent, but all is transitory. In life, the soul complex, this is, an, this is the, this interesting term, is never for two consecutive moments the same, but is like the body in constant change. There is thus a series of successive and, in one sense, different states, which are in themselves but momentary. There is still a unifying bond in that each momentary state is a present transformation represented, representative of all those which are past, mm -hmm. as it will be the generator of all future transformation, transformations potentially involved in it. This process is not interrupted by death. Change continues in the skandhas, or constituents of the organism, other than the gross body which has been cast off and which undergoes changes of its own. But there is this difference. The after-death change is merely the result of the action of accumulated past karma and does not, as in, this, as in earthly life, create new karma for which a physical body is necessary. Buddhism, Hinduism, and Christianity are in agreement in holding that man's destiny is decided on earth, though the last differs from the first two as explained above on the question whether there is more than one life on earth. There is no breach of consciousness, but a continuity of transformation. Is that not... I thought that was really outstanding uh, understanding of... of uh, of of the passage of yeah of, beautiful yeah eh? really really it's really good. beautiful this soul complex and and the, and the constant change right which really aligns That's with right. with yeah. stuff that that we've we've understood over these many decades so yeah that was a little bit of a heavy way to start this thing right <laughs> let's start with <laughs> let's start with the most metaphysical yeah abstract right. part <laughs> exactly. of why not yeah. Well, actually, what uh, I wanted to, um, you, uh, Sharon does a wonderful blog, uh, everybody, uh, for uh, On Being, which is a, a, a show with uh, Krista Tippett that's a radio show and podcast, and has a, a fantastic website, and uh, Sharon is a blogger. How often do you do the blog for them? Once a week. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> oh. If you, I know it's a lot. If you that's, have any uh, any requests for topics, I'm I'm really uh, that's the hardest part for me is thinking of what should I write and mm, yeah, um, right. I would love suggestions from okay. from you, Roger, from the listeners. Really, it, it would help a lot. Okay, so everybody out there, come on, write comments and ask. Uh, Sharon will will gladly. Uh, take take up what uh, your topics may be of interest so this particular one which struck me and it's I th I th it's recent maybe a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. uh is called proximity leads to understanding and uh, 
I th- I just think that uh, this is a super uh, article from you, Sharon, and something that uh, I think would be great to talk about. Can you just uh, you know give me uh, give us a little bit of the core of what you were trying to get to with with what proximity leads to understanding is? I think there really is a capacity within us to see ourselves in one another, to understand uh, both that everybody really does want to be happy and that we're all vulnerable to change and to loss. And uh, so we have a, a kind of equality or resonance with one another when we really pay attention. But so much of the time we objectify people, we look right through them, we're indifferent. Um, we think, oh, that's the guy who works in the supermarket. And, uh, you know, it becomes more like he's part of the supermarket than a person. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have biases and prejudice and fears and uh, all kinds of things that make our world smaller and smaller. So we're not actually relating to one another very fully. And it doesn't have to be that way. We can, we can if we pay attention, uh, you know, without like giving ourselves a lecture and saying, I need to be a better person or I need to be more spiritual, just naturally we find ourselves in one another and we feel a sense of connection, which is what leads to compassion. Hmm. Yeah. Tell that story. Uh, you used a, it's a beautiful story, uh, the Harvey Milk thing. I think that really uh, gives connection to it. Yeah, I kept I kept thinking about that with the Supreme Court decision about marriage equality. I kept thinking about uh, the movie Milk, which I'd seen several times with different friends. And this moment in the movie when Harvey Milk in the 70s, by this time I think had lost three times in his bid for public office um, as a, a gay man in San Francisco. And uh, there's a scene where he's with this group of people and he says... Everybody has to come out. Like everybody has to disclose that they're gay. And you could see like some people, they're horrified, they're terrified, you know, they've got to call their parents, they've got to do something that was kind of unthinkable. And um, but they did it. And I really saw that as the pivotal moment that led almost inexorably to the Supreme Court. Because ultimately, uh, it's one thing to create an other out of a stranger, out of an object, out of somebody you don't relate to, but you suddenly realize, oh, that's my cousin that I've loved my whole life. You know, they're gay. And, and uh, oh, that's my child um, who's a totally good person. They're gay, you know? And so it, it really made it that kind of connection. Mm. It made it inevitable. Mm. Yeah, that's so great. Um, and we do talk about us and them, this this is, of course, you talk about it, and it's something that we talk about a lot uh, because this is such a difficult atmosphere that we're in this world as it is right now, so much polarization. And, um, and I, I'm going to prompt you about something I brought up on, uh, with uh, my partner David on Mind Rolling uh, in the last couple of podcasts. Uh, one of them was... Uh, and and here uh, and Sharon talks about it's it's one thing after all to create and then demonize another out of nothing, no connection, no relationship, no lo- knowledge of anyone's hopes and fears, their dreams and sorrows is quite another. If 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 the world is attempting to create another out of it and then demonize everybody, um, so Donald Trump, 
easy target, I know. And <laughs> I, you know, after those comments he made about uh, Mexican people, and, and of course now he's really thrown himself in hot water with, um, with his comments about uh, John McClane. Uh, and I was... I was admitting on mind rolling how I was enjoying the spectacle of this buffoon-like behavior that I was uh, that was appearing before me on television or on the internet, and then my next thought was, so I had two two thoughts. This this is how it went. I boomeranged, <laughs> right? The next thought was, but wait a minute. Jesus, he's getting a really great following. And so now there is a large population out there of us, right? Not them, of us that really feels connected to what some of what he's representing. And which I feel, and many people do, of course, is, is very polarizing to say the very least. And then, um, so that was scary. And then the next thought is, I'm just back in the same damn place of uh, demonizing, as you put it, uh, somebody, and uh, which is just counterproductive to taking up. I mean, if I was to, you know, this uh, may not be my uh, my work in this life to to protest against Donald Trump, particularly. But if I was to even think of anything like that with this kind of intent which demonizes another person uh, is is so um, not just counterproductive but potentially hurtful to me myself. Can you just talk about how the hell can we <laughs> deal with this stuff? Well, I think first of all to say um, we we recognize our connection to, we have compassion for someone doesn't mean we like them and it also doesn't mean we approve of them or that we're not going to counter very forcefully what they're doing or what they're saying you know so it's not meant to make you into like a doormat and and very passive and and complacent at all because that would that would just be wrong and that i think is also people's fear that if i get all loving it'll be all like rainbows and unicorns and uh, you know I won't be strong and I'll let myself be hurt I'll let other people be hurt and I'll just kind of smile that you know stupid smile of phony loving kindness or something and it's not like that um, it is a force and um, I mean there are causes and conditions behind Donald Trump being Donald Trump Lord knows what they are <laughs> you know I can't figure Lord it out knows. exactly but um, you know, it seemed to me that to have, if, I mean, either he means what he says or he doesn't mean what he says. It's just for show. Yeah. If he means what he says, then he's like so vastly disconnected that one could only have compassion for him, you know, like, mm. good Lord. It's like, you know, to be born and, you know, go all the way to dying probably with, without like a meaningful connection to the world around you and people around you is not that enticing a prospect, you know? And if he doesn't mean what he says, then that's, that's also bad. You know, it's also bad news. Cause, cause then he's, uh, you know, he's really empty, like in the negative sense of the word, not, not in the 
you know, Buddhist sense of the word. Um, then, I mean, what a commitment to spend one's life masquerading as a hateful blowhard. I suspect he probably means what he says, you know, and that he's, he's just in that world. And you think, God, you know, it, it's, it's pretty terrible. But again, that doesn't mean that you, you know, just give in. That, that would be really silly. It's, it's a little bit, um, you know, like uh, the way Ramdas used to be with uh, Donald Rumsfeld or somebody back in the day, you know, mm. putting them on his puja table and saying, I love you. And it was like, Bleh. but, <laughs> you know, uh, somehow doing it enough so that you kind of realize that you don't want to you don't want to, in a, in a sense, become them. You don't want to have that level of disconnection. And um, But it, it takes a tremendous understanding about the power of compassion and how it doesn't make you weak. And it's not about being stupid or, or giving in in any way. And that's not easy to come by. Mm. You know, that's also not what we're taught, that compassion is a strength and and it's a power and that you can... As you said, you can you can do very forceful action with a different intention, and that intention could be compassion, certainly not only for him but including him. You know, it, it's also also seeing, look at the society we've co-created. You know, where he to continue on the Donald Trump theme for a while. <laughs> you know, he could say that about Mexicans, and and he could say that about the president of the United States, and. Uh, it was only when he sort of insulted John McKay that he got into trouble, you know? Right. And you think, wow, that's really bad news, too, you know? Like, people just let him get away with all that and and uh, are kind of amused or agreeing with him even worse, you know? And it's only when uh, a particular thing happened, you know, that that suddenly people are censoring him yeah i think that was kind of alarming too yeah i think what's really uh important uh thing that you mentioned here when we talk about compassion is not something that we are grew up that we grow up with as a um as something to develop and it's uh and it is looked upon in in many facets of our society as, as weakness. It definitely is. And how do we, how do we turn that all around? How do we, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, it seems to me one of the main ways for us to do that. And to some extent, maybe new generations have been doing it, you know, since we, we came up in, in the, uh, in the sixties, late sixties and early seventies. And that is to, to, uh, have some understanding of it from what we've been given from Eastern spirituality and then to uh, embody it as much as, as possible. But what? just to talk a little bit about what are the aspects of uh, compassion and, and how to enact them in, in our lives, perhaps through practice and uh, certainly through action. Well, the first step, I think, really is what I was writing in that On Being piece, which is uh, really learn to see one another. It's like paying attention. And 
when we pay attention to anybody, I think we do intuit both that, wow, everybody does want to be happy and everybody is vulnerable. You know, it's not, I'm sometimes we think of compassion um, as very stratified, you know, like you way down there whose life has fallen apart, which mine never could. I'm going to bestow this kindness upon you. And it's not like that, you know, because we do have that kind of shared vulnerability. I mean, it's not like we share the same measure of pain because we don't, but we do have this kind of vulnerability that life changes and nobody is immune. And, and that should be a call to take care of one another or, or think about one another in a different way and um, realize, yeah, that could be me in some way. And uh, so it's not like a lack of respect or regard when we have compassion. It's more like coming from that that place of equality. So we look at people and we listen to people and we do find ourselves in one another and we see that nature of change and, and vulnerability and we care. Um, one of the things about compassion that's really hard to understand in the Buddhist uh, definition, it's the trembling or the quivering of the heart of the heart in response to pain or suffering. It's a movement toward to see if we can be of help. So it's the trembling or quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering. It's a movement toward to see if we can be of help. It's not a movement into to burn up, right? And so there's almost a kind of balance that's implied in the teaching about compassion. We tend to romanticize it sometimes and think, you know, if I'm devastated, then I'm really compassionate. But from the Buddhist point of view, uh, which is very practical, kind of common sense in a way, if you're devastated, you don't have any energy to try to help, right? So everything in a way, in a funny way, becomes about how bad you feel. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that's why one of the reasons that compassion is not seen as a weakness, it's seen as a strength, because you do have the energy to, to go toward, to see if you can be of help. Mm. Yeah, I think that's super important. Uh, that's a, a, a wonderful point. And a a wonderful framing and and that is it is energetic it is not passive and uh and that in that is is an action that can happen and i think that once people demonstrate that in their lives in their family lives even just in their family lives with their parents children you know uh, once they demonstrate that um that action and that uh, energy um i think that passes into children in a way beyond words and i think that's probably more important than than any talk that they can be given about caring about other human beings i think the the demonstration uh, what role is uh, empathy empathy is empathy a a bit of a doorway to um compassion yeah, I mean, again, this is from, you know, very specific use of words within the Buddhist psychology, but um, empathy would be considered uh, like a necessary but not sufficient condition for compassion to arise. It's like a doorway. We have to have empathy, but empathy is actually not enough from this point of view. And, and this is uh, something, this woman, Tanya Singer, uh, is a neuroscientist in Germany. She's been exploring this in terms of the brain which is really interesting. Um, empathy being like that resonance, you know, like 
recognizing viscerally in your body, like, ooh, that probably hurts a lot as we look at somebody. And we need that. Otherwise, we really do live in a world of our own. It's like then we're more Donald Trumpish than we'd like to be. Um, we definitely need that. And yet, you know, maybe we, this is the way I usually talk about it, maybe we have that genuine moment of empathy, but we're frightened. And we feel like, oh, I've got to run away. Or we have that genuine, mo genuine moment of empathy and we feel overwhelmed, exhausted, depleted, fatigued, like I can't bear to be involved. Or maybe we feel that moment of empathy and we're very blaming, you know, like I gave you perfectly good advice six months ago. If you'd only listened to me, you wouldn't be in this bad situation. Or maybe we feel that moment of empathy and we're very egotistical, which is the usual thing, you know, like I'm going to fix you. I'm going to save you. Um, or maybe we feel that moment of empathy and we have a compassionate response, which is the movement toward to see if we can be of help, right? So that compassionate response, uh, for a while I was trying to school myself to not say compassion, to say the compassionate response mm. instead, but failed. Mm. Anyway, so um, that compassionate response implies some balance because we're not going into to burn up. Uh, some compassion for ourselves as well, um, understanding, wisdom, you know, uh, energy, because we're not exhausted or depleted. So it's a particular response to a moment of empathy. Mm. That's beautifully said. Love that. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I, and uh, another thing that uh, you talk about in the article, uh, and we've 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 passed over it a little bit, but how society perpetu perpetuates a dualistic worldview of who is like us and who is, isn't. And it's a, that's an amazing thing. If you walk around and just have that, uh, in your head and you say, not only does seeing the world in these terms keep us at arm's length, but it also places our own sense of who we are in a box. And if you, as I say, if you walk around, with that little thought just and, and you see people and you see the immediacy with which the mind goes to boxing the people either racial or sexual or um or or uh, size wise or um or income uh, disparity i mean it is staggering what happens, and, and with these, it's perpetuating these projections that are so, um, in reality, harmful, be, uh, harmful to oneself, never mind the other person, which is just anything. And, you know, and people, it's, it's, it's difficult, I think, for us to, to really understand how powerful each thought that we have is. And, um, but how the hell do you deal with this stuff and walking, just walking around and this stuff is popping up? I mean, now, you know, I guess we can get into mindfulness a little bit, but some, uh, antidotes to that kind of, uh, constant, the perpetuating of the, as you say, a dualistic, uh, worldview. Talk about that a little bit. I'm smiling because you're, you're melting on my screen. You're oh. becoming like a... Monet. <laughs> uh, 
It's very interesting. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, oh, clouds, flowers. Oh. Uh, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, there is some evidence, you know, I, have, I haven't really studied the studies, but there's some evidence that mindfulness, it makes sense, decreases unconscious bias because uh, usually it's unconscious, you know, racial or whatever. And uh, <clears throat> the more mindful we get, the more we see it. And then we can let go of it. If we don't see it, it just governs us. The other part of it is um, that's one of the reasons I like doing loving kindness meditation in just an informal way, like walking down the street in New York or whatever, because I find that the same judgments may arise, but I cap it with a may you be happy, like, mm. you know, walking down the street and doing loving kindness and somebody walks by and I think that's the wrong jacket for this season. What are you wearing that for? And then it's like, Oh, maybe happy, uh, which makes it kind of fun, you know? And it's almost like uh, a reminder, like, okay, maybe I can't control those thoughts that will just arise in my mind, but I don't have to buy into them. Mm. You know, I can actually switch to the meta channel, to the <laughs> loving kindness channel. Uh. I have to think of that when I get on the plane and uh, it's like it's true. Know, 40 below zero and you get on a plane and there's a guy sitting there in shorts and you have an immediately inflammatory reaction. And I can I can now have a methodology. Thank you so much. May you be happy. Oh, you're welcome. That's great. <laughs> and That's he is. Right. He's obviously happy. Why I'm even having that thought. I don't yeah. it's from a Larry David uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm show. He got on a plane and he sees a guy in shorts. You don't wear shorts on an airplane? What's wrong with you? <laughs> so, oh my God. Um another thing you talk about here is uh, a study actually. Um it's a interpersonal contact between hostile groups. Uh counteracts bias by letting people get to know one another as individual could you talk about this a little bit and, and this uh, particular study that you found? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's that's been a, a sign of hope for me for some time that um, intuitively it makes sense, right? That if we uh, we hold all these ideas about one another, not the reality about one another, and that if, if there's proximity, then, uh, and let's say you're sitting next to a person of a different race in your classroom, there's every possibility then that somebody else will say something disparaging about that race and you to think, well, no, it's not quite like that because there's Joe or there's Sarah, you know, they're not like that and they're a human being and they help me and um, or they challenge me in that good way or whatever it was, you know. And so we just can't buy into that sort of empty, abstract, uh, very blatant sort of categorization, you know, that, that can be rigid. And, um, and I think culturally, you know, we go through as a nation, it's very interesting. Uh, when we go through kind of, uh, changes in who the enemy is and, uh, you know, when you and I were, were younger and growing up, and there's probably Russians, you know, or Soviets, um, 
or red Chinese or whatever we call them. It's so horrible. And then, uh, you know, all these years later, they're not held in that light totally. Uh, maybe by some people, but, you know, not not in sort of the general discourse. Um, you think, but wait a minute, what happened to the, you know, armies waiting to swim to California, whatever it was that we were taught? And, <laughs> Right. The uh, Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Yeah, I mean, they're movie. having a life, you know. And, or those ways in which you never go to a place, and then you go to a place, and you see, oh, look at that, you know, the person's trying to get a job for their daughter, or their, you know, they're like families, they're people, they're they've got a lot of the same issues, and um. You know, so it, it's hopeful to me that if we have the opportunity to pay attention, something can shift. Not always, you know, sadly, but but more and more. Hmm. I did uh, a podcast actually uh, recently, just the other day, yesterday, um, with uh, actually with our friend who we did a podcast with, my my young friend Jared Levy. Uh, from San uh-huh. Francisco, remember? And he called me and he said, I just, uh, I joined uh, this group. Um, it's called Inside Circle. And what they do is they go into prisons and, you know, a bunch of men will go into prisons and, and some of them are facilitators and some of them are like him, just a regular citizen. And the um, the prison there's some selection. I'm not sure how they select them, but then they gather together in the chapel and they do like day long, couple of day long things of, of uh, sitting in a circle and sharing. And this is everybody. This is Latinos. This is African Americans. This is white people, Mexicans and Mexicans from Southern Mexico versus Northern Mexico. Apparently there's, there's very, very defined groups in prisons. And, and this is Folsom, by the way. So these, these are all uh, men that are in for a long time. Um, and, and they even told us that in the yard, when you go in the yard, each part of the yard has a different uh, section of people based on race. But when they come into this chapel and they do this men's group, there are representatives from all of the groups that come there and share. And they share their deepest um, fears, their d- deepest wounds. And it's just this amazing catharsis of how these people are. Um, it, it allows them to, to transform in significant ways. But one of the interesting things, which is is related to this whole uh, article, the the fact, uh, what you've done here, the fact that they're in this proximity with each other and sharing in that way. And some of the sharing is like, it reminded me of stuff, exercises that we did with Ramdas when we were kids in India and we were in this uh, monastery for a while, Maharaji sent us to. And each person would sit individually with Ramdas, like a few feet from him, with those, and look into those big blue eyes, 
and he would say, whatever it is that you're afraid to say or have been afraid to even think about yourself, say it now. And people would, <laughs> this stuff would just pour out of them. And the walls were very thin. It was India on each side of where the, where Ramdas's room was. So eventually everybody knew everybody's <laughs> <laughs> So it turned out, of course, and we all had very, very similar shtick, you know, from Western, you know, starting out with sexual issues and all that stuff. And in the same way, everybody in this room starts to realize that we are we have such similar wounds and really uh, they said most of it goes back to mother and father issues and and that leads me to the next thought of his holiness the dalai lama how much today right he emphasizes mother a a a, um, a pure mother he doesn't put it that way but um who uh, emits love and compassion, that's what will change the world, right? Just talk about that. I mean, your, your own experience of being with people and, and, and seeing them in so many complex situations uh, of woundedness. Well, I mean, I think it's true. I think unlike, uh, I mean, many psychological systems would say uh, they'd have a pretty dire prognosis for somebody who did not have that kind of loving, affectionate role model. And and, uh, and yet not everybody, you know, within psychology will say that because there are people who talk about the incredible resilience of the human spirit and human beings and how uh, people get through, you know, it's a miracle really when you hear about, you know, people's lives what people have gone through and that, you know, we survive by and large, not everybody, but, um, and, uh, I think it's never too late, you know, that one can have, you know, a really tough childhood and, um, not have great love for yourself and really struggle. I mean, maybe you're in prison, but I think it's never too late. And either one could learn to receive that kind of love from someone, if there's someone there, or I think honestly, that's what meditation often is, is we learn to bestow it on ourselves. Um, if there's not an external figure uh, around. So I think it is the, the biggest healing force there is. Meditation. Well, love, you know, so uh, meditation is one way of um, awakening that. Uh-huh, right. You know, and it's awakening it even to receive it. It's like you receive it from yourself. I think that, I, I, you know, I just love what these this men's group was doing in the way that and and we did some and we've done some of this work as i mentioned with with around ramdas and so on but the way this whole article about proximity that the way in which you you in a group and and that's all about satsang which to me is is highly important i mean talking about meditation being one 
uh, major day-to-day way to uh, to uh, allow self-love to come through um, by by self-investigation. Um, and I think that being with a group in in doing spiritual activity of Krishna Das, you know, who's our good friend. Uh, and many people know quite well that being in those uh, kirtans that he does engenders exactly what we're talking about. But I think also just in an informal way of people getting together and just expressing themselves, the way that we can see we are so alike and our aspirations and so on are so um, in line with each other and so 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 much common interest it's then how do you take that out of your family out of your sangha satsang out of your comfortable zone and how do you put that in action when you go out in the world and um, that allows you to stop polarizing by virtue of the fact that everyone that you see wants the same basic things that you do. So, okay, give us the big capper here, okay? The big uh, to-do, to engender this. The pithy answer? Yeah. Okay, pay attention. You got to pay attention. You got to look at the person, Uh, not through them, whether they're the person helping you in the store, the person asking you for a dollar on the street, or uh, your big rival at work, or or uh, your partner, whom you may not have actually looked at for a good long time, uh, you know, we've got to really pay attention. Mm. Okay. That's it, everybody. Going to pay attention. <laughs> we're going to, and we're going to have a test at the end of the, uh, at, at the end of what? Um, you have uh, 30 days to start paying attention. Okay. And then you get tested. We, you know, we have a, uh, <laughs> on Ramdas on Ramdas.org we have a meditation course mindfulness meditation course i forgot to tell you about it uh it's very very some just basics uh, from ramdas's canon uh and uh his decades of uh, of work and um so we have a little bit we just put out yesterday a little bit of a questionnaire about what is it that uh um that it obstructs or what questions you have that that uh, make uh, meditation difficult for you, and so on. And um, did I tell you we're sending all the questions to you to to answer? Because no, I didn't even know you had the course. I have to like look on the site more than I do. I didn't get the survey either. I uh, left out. <laughs> oh God! Well, thank you so much, Sharon, for sh- letting me share with you on the Meta Podcast here. It's uh, this, yeah, this, look, look at, uh, people say to me, well, it's a pretty good job. I say, yeah, it's great work if you can get it. I mean, this is just fantastic. And, and I actually said, oh, this is great. I actually have said to people when they say that to me, you're lucky, right? You got this great job. You talk to people like Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield and so on. And, and you're just, you know, doing stuff with Ramdas and, I said, yeah, it sure beats selling shoes. I've said this, right? Next thing I know, I'm with a friend of mine last weekend or so, uh, and we went to a shoe store. And the shoe salesman came and served him uh, and was the most conscious, 
present being <laughs> who knew everything about shoes that was necessary for my friend to get the right, the correct pair of shoes. And I'm sitting there and this whole thing, and he went out to get another pair. And I said to my friend, Roger, Jesus, I said, this is the, like, he's the perfect shoe s- uh, servant, salesman, but he's serving. He's serving you perfectly. And, and I told him that story about, well, it's better than selling shoes. It is not better than selling <laughs> shoes. <laughs> That's and right. it's just proof. And it's just proof of you, this whole article you just said. I was looking through. I, I was not being present. And he, he brought me to being present just by being here now. I mean, he was really just here. Yeah, that's and right. he was fully engaged with what he was doing. And, um, and, and that's how we really need to, we need to see the world more like this. We really do. So uh, great article. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Thank you. So everybody uh, come and uh, you can subscribe to Sharon on iTunes. If you want to get this show through uh, the uh, podcast app on your uh, smartphone uh, or just go to uh, mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon. And uh, not only will you see all these wonderful podcasts that Sharon's done, some of them like this one and some of them called from talks, these some fantastic talks she's given. Uh, and uh, there's also wonderful daily wisdoms that we put up of all sorts of uh, stuff that we find that we feel would be helpful for people. And, uh, and please uh, also take advantage of... Uh, uh, this support, it's all listener supported, so we would appreciate um, sharing in that way. And it's easy to find a donate button or an Amazon link where you can buy all your stuff on Amazon. And we get a tiny piece that uh, Sharon and MindPod share. Share, share, share. How do you like that for a little commercial at the end here? That's <laughs> okay? great. <laughs> okay, everybody, we'll see you next time round. And. Uh, Sharon Salzberg and Meta Hour. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.